You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. How many brushstrokes or guitar strings are the threads of creativity? Out of the darkness into the light, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, the author of The Last Mona Lisa, one of People Magazine's 20 Best Books of Summer, Jonathan Santlofer. After the break, words and music with singer-songwriter Karen Bella. Jonathan, it's been a while. Good to see you again. It has been a while, Larry. It's great to see you. You know, it's always very funny. Uh, it, it is. It's a number of years, but there you are, and um, here we are again, which is great. We all, right. all made it this year. So, right. so we're going to go back in time initially. In the summer of 2003, these are some of the names who joined me for Writers on the Vine at Palmer Vineyards on the east of Long Island, sitting on a deck overlooking the whole vineyard with a live audience, I think was the best series I've ever been involved with. And not because of me, because of the quality of people that came that summer in 2003. Among them, Nelson DeMille, Susan Isaacs, Joel Siegel, John Feinstein, S.J. Roseanne, Nancy Geary, and Heather Doom-McAdam. And we finished the series with Mick Foley. And in July of 13, 2003, the theme was the artistic temperament and defining moments with John Johnson, who was a broadcast journalist. And one of his first assignments was covering the prison riots at Attica. And a first-time novelist, one Jonathan Santlofer. So it's nice to reconnect, even though we reconnected prior after that experience too. But thank you so much. It's wonderful to see you again. Wonderful to see you too. And I, <clears throat> I was thinking that the people you mentioned, Pippin Isaacs and Nelson DeMille and S.J. Roseanne in particular, you know, when I wrote that, The Death Artist, which was my first novel, they were so welcoming to me and... I mean, Nelson DeMille and Susan Isaacs offered verbs. They didn't meet me. They had no reason to do it. And they were just, they were wonderful, you know? So. I, I'm a consumer of books and TV for a lot of reasons. So my initial reaction to reading this book, and I'm digging into the storyline, I tend to think, what reminds me of this? What, what synapses are going off in my mind, in my brain? And I immediately thought of, a series that was on CNN with Stanley Tucci, taking us a regional tour of food in Italy. It, it's, it's just great television. And then Lisa Scottolini kind of changed direction with the kind of books that she writes, and she wrote Eternal, which takes place in Italy. And then I thought about what you did with this book, The Last Mona Lisa, for me. You got me really excited about the world of art and its history. Besides the driving narrative of the book. So I just want to put that out there because I thank you so much because I got an education from you reading this book. So I'm going to ask you one day, would you please take me into any museum and just <laughs> walk me through and then kind of expand my knowledge of the world of art? Well, you know, Larry, you'll probably be sorry if you do that with me because I tend to zoom through museums and just stop and focus on the one or two things that I'm thinking about that, you know, anytime a friend says, take me through a museum, I say, you'll be sorry. <laughs> uh, so I'm not sure, you know, we'll, we'll, maybe we can do it. Just don't be mad at me. 
I can never be mad at you. When I found out this book was coming out, I said, this is the person I want to talk to. It's been many years going back. In fact, I want to, well, I'll save this story for the back end of the, of the interview. So tell us about the origins of The Last Mona Lisa. What is it based on? Because it is a novel. Well, it's a novel, but, you know, it's based on a true crime. So the thing, the true crime is the theft of the Mona Lisa in 1911, which really happened. I mean, the thing that's astonishing is that this disgruntled Louvre Museum worker who had just been fired hid in a closet, a broom closet, overnight, came out in the morning, it was a muse, the day the museum was closed to the public, right. into the gallery, he took the Mona Lisa out of its frame. He was the carpenter who had built the frame for the Mona Lisa stuffed the painting under his jacket, and he walked out of the museum. And it took the museum two days to notice the Mona Lisa was missing, which is like the most insane thing I've ever heard. Anyhow, that sort of stuck in my mind, and I just started doing research about it. And I discovered a whole bunch of things, like while it was missing for two years, it was missing for two years, forgeries were made, sold as the real painting, and I, I started having this idea in my mind of how to create a new and fictional contemporary story and play it against the true story in the past. And I mean, I took some liberties with the story in the past as well, of course, but you know, it's a kind of, I think my book becomes this kind of um, sort of romantic thriller adventure, at least in my mind, uh, you know, the great grandson of the thief is going back not only to find out what happened, but I think to rediscover his family and who he is and who he's been. So I will admit to you, Larry, which I shouldn't admit, I started this book 11 years ago. Wow. But then I haven't worked on it for 11 years. I'm not that slow. And then I put it aside and then I took it out and then I put it aside for a number of years. And then just about maybe two years ago, I took it out and I had the whole idea of how to make it work. Because I, these time periods, you know, past, present, there's many different points of view in the book. I wanted it to feel seamless. And that was the hard part. You know, it's like I, I never want to see the ballerinas sweat. Okay. You know, I, I don't want people to think, oh, this is difficult. I want them to, to have, just glide through the book and be excited. So that to me felt like what my work was, to take this incredible true story, merge it with this fictional story and make them both feel organic and part of the same thing. I'm, I'm, with your permission, I'm gonna ask you a personal question. Yeah. And, and it's based on uh, what I call the focal point. The focal point is where your eye is drawn to when you see a work of art. Uh, and I extrapolate from that too when I t sit down with writers and what they're doing with the books that they create. But I say what's so interesting in the creative process is what's on the edges that we don't go to right away, but on the edges, and no spoiler alert, but on the edges of a Mona Lisa, there's some really interesting information. You're going to have to read the book because I'm not going to give it away, but you set it up so beautifully. But also what I learned from you that when a picture is on a canvas, there may be something else under that picture on the canvas, and that is a mystery. And then I started to think that sometimes part of the story, a personal story, is an aura. And I think some of the aura that comes through from, from me, for me, from you, is 
about your late wife and daughter. It's just, it's in the ether out there. And I'm, you can go as far as you want to go, but this just, once again, when I think about the relationship of the, the man, the great grandfather who stole the Mona Lisa and his wife, Simone, the apartment that they lived in. I just, I just, I just thought about you. I'm going to, I'm going to do my best to answer that and not become an emotional mess. Um, hey, are you comfortable with this? Cause I think this is what came to me and I, I'm not Oprah Winfrey, but I think this is so important to, to learn about you and how you create as an artist and a writer. You know, in a way, Larry, it's, it's, it's one of the most perceptive questions that ha that have, someone has asked me about this book. And I think it's, well, you know me somewhat. I mean, other people do know about the memoir I wrote, the, the Widower's Notebook, which I wrote about two years after my wife died. My wife died very suddenly. And um, it, it, it threw me out of my life, you know? It, it, it took me a long time to find my way again. And I think these kind of, uh, tragedies, losses in our lives. We, we don't exactly get over them, but we learn to incorporate them into ourselves and to move past them. But I will say, and I want to say this, two things. One, one of the reasons I, I went back to the last Mona Lisa is that my wife had always said, I think this is your greatest book. Wow. And I kind of went back to it to finish it for her. And you're absolutely right that the story in the past uh, with Vincent and Simone in Paris, I drew upon my own feelings of love and loss and the fact that he's gonna steal this painting for her, that he would do anything for her. I, I did go deep into myself. Um, there were probably longer, more emotional versions of that in my other versions of the book. And I, I cut it down, but I still feel there's a lot of my, me and my story and other people's story about loss in that story. I mean, I think we all experience loss during our lives. It's impossible not to. I, I, you know, I didn't want The Last Mona Lisa to be a sad book. I wanted it to be a thrilling book, and I, I hope it is. But I also think that you have to tap into your character's truest emotions, and that means you have to go certain places, you know? The, the great-grandson, Luke Peroni, Peroni, who becomes the protagonist, also has kind of, you know, he, he has to find himself in the right. course of the right. book. Um, you know, people say to me, are you, are you Luke? Are you the protagonist? And I always say, only if I were tall and <laughs> handsome and like 30 years younger. But, you know, we do embody our characters with, with parts of ourselves. And, and I think it's very perceptive of you to notice and realize that that story in the past, I mean, it's not my story, of course, but that it, it does, I did bring something or it touches something in me that, for better or worse, is real, you know. So the next question is obvious because um, I know that was another tragedy in your life with a loss of art, and I believe in a, in a fire, which kind of turned your life around. Have you actually seen the Mona Lisa? Oh, yeah. I've seen the Mona Lisa several times. You know, everybody always says the same thing when they see the Mona Lisa for the first time. They say, it's so small, and it is a small painting. 
Um, but you know, like most things that we are used to seeing in reproduction, the first time we see them, it's hard to see them. Right. Because we've seen them so many times. Our mind says, yep, that's it, that's it. In fact, the Mona Lisa, and it's a shame that it has glass on it, and it has glass on it because people have thrown rocks at it. One guy uh, threw, th you know, hit it with a, I mean, it's crazy stuff. But, you know, I believe with a painting, if you stand in front of a painting and let yourself fall into it, you know, a lot comes back. And then after, people have to remember the Mona Lisa was a commission that Leonardo took when he needed the money. Um, it was a silk merchant, a rather wealthy middle-class silk merchant, and he was having this painting made of his young wife, Lisa, uh, who, by the way, was his third wife. His two other wives had died. And, um, but what happened is then Leonardo became successful, and he didn't give them the painting. He never gave it to them. He kept it with him. I always wondered, did they get their money back for the deposit? I have no idea. But he kept the painting until he died. The painting was with him when he died in France. And he kept painting on it and adding things to it and playing with it. And it's a very, very rich painting, um, very mysterious. Uh, Lisa Giardini, who was the model, was a very young woman. She ends up feeling older and wiser in the painting. Um, but, you know, the other thing is that the theft of the Mona Lisa is one of the things that made it famous. Right. It was painting people knew, but it was not a blockbuster painting. And when it was stolen, it was like a media frenzy. That's that's so, that's that's really interesting that you say that, and I'll tell you why. Because if you look at a work of art, they're selling for a thousand dollars. You look yeah. at a work of art, they're selling for a million dollars. People want the million dollar one, even if it's not as good as the ten dollar one or the thousand dollar one. Absolutely. So yeah. it's because it was stolen. That that make it more precious and important. If it just stayed there and had been stolen and the whole story around that, because it's been missing for a while, and then I think Napoleon had it and a lot of people tried to get in forgeries. That's what that's interesting about how you put a value on a work of art. Do you have to make it really expensive so somebody wants to buy it because they're rich and it's boys with toys and private collections? Because you've got a character in this book that has a collection for his eyes only, which is a major component of the story, I'm not going to give it away, but you raise some really interesting issues about how we value things. Absolutely. You know, um, we, let's say this, Leonardo did not paint a lot of paintings in his lifetime. Um, he was busy. I always say he was a slacker when it came to painting, but he was a genius with, you know, invent, looking at the circulatory system and anatomy and right. machines. He was one of our greatest painters of all time, no question, but he didn't do a lot of them. So his paintings would be valuable because they're rare. On the other hand, this was just one of his paintings, you know, and the theft, as you said, it created this amazing mythology around the painting. And there were these forgeries made, the paintings had disappeared. You know, everyone was looking for, what's this about? You know, when it comes to forgeries, um, it's very much in the air these days. There are three documentaries screaming about forgeries and about art theft. And um, the big question becomes, if a forgery is so great, why isn't it worth anything? You know, when, interesting. When it compared to yeah. the real thing. But it's because we want some connection to that life. So 
for example, you know, people bid millions of dollars on JFK's golf clubs or Marilyn's pops and pans, but they're the same object. You know, with art, of course, it is an individual object. You know, it's made by one person in their lifetime. There's not a lot of it. But I, I don't know if you know this about me, Larry, that I have a side hustle in which I make forgeries for clients, for wealthy clients. I've been doing this for 20 years. Well, I, I've, seen you, I've seen your drawings, too. They're, ter they're terrific. Thank you. But I got involved in this crazy thing where I make their replication. Um, and I slip into the mindset of an artist when I make them. And, and it's amazing. But... Of course, those paintings that I make for people, they're not the real thing, and they're not worth the amount of money as the real thing because they're not the real thing. No matter how much I've labored on it, no matter how much I've put into it, it might be almost exactly the same and equally beautiful, but we value the rarity of something. And as I said, sort of dipping into a life. So the Mona Lisa, you know, she represents a kind of, the whole high renaissance in Italy. She's the one figurehead of that time. So, so you know, she's the crowning achievement, we think, of Leonardo da Vinci. Right. So all of that history, all of that idea about art and culture is in this one little painting. Um, and we can take that. And that guy did take it. He stole it out of the museum. It's so amazing to me. Um, what you, by the way, when I make these replications, these forgeries. I remember at one point, my daughter was about 10 years old and she came into my studio and I was working on this rather large copy of a Willem de Kooning painting. And she said, Daddy, why don't you just sell it as the real thing? <laughs> I, I said, well, first of all, honey, I don't want to go to jail. And then second of all, I think I'm wasting my money on your education that you don't know the answer to that. But we had a long talk about it. And, uh, yeah, so I'm not going to do that. I like to uh, not. I'd rather not go to jail. Well, my <laughs> get, my guest is Johnson Saint Lofer's new book is called The Last Mona Lisa. This is a quote from Michael Connolly. I also have met and interviewed. He's a great crime fiction writer and very generous in helping other writers. I've known that for the fact. And yet, this is I'm going to hopefully get this quote right. Unstoppable. What happens next? Momentum, and unputdownable book that's from michael connelly now i got to about page 200 in your book and this is where it's personal for me and i put it down yeah. um uh, luke has found his grand great-grandparents apartment and he go ah. and he goes in and there's an elderly woman living there and on the walls is stuff on the walls from his great-grandmother great-great-grandmother if i get that order right i always screw things up cousins and uncles who's great and who's not and then she goes into her bedroom i believe and she gives him a picture that vincent has painted right i'm reading this i stopped reading because because it got very personal now um when i sold my house which had been in my family for over 50 years a lot of stuff went into storage and when things went to storage, things disappeared. Yeah. I had Mickey Mantle memorabilia. Oh, no. I had, um, my parents brought back a painting of an African, a black woman from the Caribbean. My grandmother painted. Basically, amateur painting, still lifes, fruit bowls, 
and she used to also get hand paint us birthday cards. And the last thing that disappeared was a signed note that you gave me after an interview, and I had it framed. And I think there's a little drawing attached to that. And it disappeared. So when I read this part of the book of him getting that painting, and then I hadn't thought about Mary Grandmother in a long time, because it's a long time ago that she died. It just came back to me. Wow. Her, her paintings, the thing that you gave me, which I cherished, besides I, Mickey Mantle was my guy. If you go way back in time for the Yankees, he was my guy, even though he was flawed, if you learn later on in this life. So that's how your book, on a very personal level, impacted me. Wow, I'm I'm uh, I'm very touched to hear that, and now I I'm thinking in my head I have to write Larry another note and do another drawing. I don't remember what I drew on my note, but I'll do another one. You know, Larry, it's interesting because the, the man I was closest to in my life was my grandfather, my mother's father, who uh, I was, you know, kind of in a certain way brought me up. And we were super close. And um, he died young. I was 12. And it was a, you know, I've said to people, it was a moment where the world went dark for me. But grandparents are the most, you know, can be the most astonishing people. And also losing this. And when you talk about your grandmother's paintings and what we just talked about, you know, they had meaning to you. They have, they're your grandmother's work, which yeah. is tremendous, you know? And that's, there we have a whole, the whole story of your family and your grandmother and your relationships. And so when something like that is taken from you, it's lost, you know, it's a very deep emotional thing. You know, my, I had my grandfather's pocket watch, which was stolen and I'm still not over it. And that was a long time ago, you know, and I, think about it periodically and I know it was just a thing but you know it was what I had from my grandfather so um you know know, I'm both sorry and glad to have touched you at that moment because this book is also so much about for me you know relationships of family and and people and you know that Luke the great grandson as you said comes to this apartment in Paris yeah there on the wall is this little painting by his great-grandfather, which has meant sort, sort of nothing to the woman who has lived there and the people before her, except that she liked it, and she gives it to him, and it means so much to him. You know? So, yeah, our connections to the past are, well, they're very important to me in my life. So, so let's, pull, let's pull you back in terms of the art and craft of storytelling. I think Colin Harrison told me that Colin Harrison is a very, very good writer and editor, by the way. He, I know. He, he's terrific. And he said, if there is a blonde in a hotel, <laughs> hotel lobby smoking a cigarette, that's trouble. You got a little bit of a femme fatale in this book. Once again, no spoiler alerts, right. but, um, I love her character, and there is um, some mystery attached to her, which we don't learn about. And what the way you set it up, you're playing with us a lot. Um, the way you set it up is is beautiful as the book picks up momentum towards the end. So how to, creating this character, yes, a femme fatale, no femme fatale, because you have her, her in a relationship with another primary character. Yeah. 
Um, you know, what, she was probably my greatest challenge in the book because I don't want to have any spoilers here either, but I needed to keep, uh, you know, the reader follows her, but there is information that's being withheld. Right. About her identity and rather what she's after. Um, you know, I always, it's interesting. I always feel that the femme fatale is exactly that fatal. And it's usually the woman herself who ends up being fatal and, and destroyed. Um, I, I, you know, I kind of love all the characters in the book. Even when I'm writing the bad guys, I love them. So uh, Alec, Alex, uh, who's, the, who's this woman in the book, I got to, I had to really get inside her head so that I could also be ahead of the reader as right. I wrote her. Right. Do you know what I mean? Um, I love the idea if there's a blonde sitting in a, yeah, in a hotel lobby. Well, uh, I sound like I'm very um, outgoing and confident, but I'm the guy who would never approach that blonde in the, because I, you know, I'm a short guy and I'm just a regular guy and I was never the guy that the blondes went for. So I would have looked at her and thought, I would look at the blonde in the hotel lobby and think, yeah, there's a mystery there, but I'm not going to find out. All right, we got a few minutes left. Uh, I have I got this book in front of me, literally, and I'm going to read it uh, um, later on. We have some more time. The book is called "The Woman, The Woman Who Stole Vermeer." We think of men as art thieves. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a true story of Rose Dugdale, and uh, I guess uh, a work of art that she stole in a heist. Are you familiar with her and, the, and this book? And do you know about her? Yeah, which surprises me because I think I. I gone so deep into the research of art forgery and art theft, I, I don't know that book. I don't know it. Wow, I know something you don't know about the world of art. You just made my day. Thank you. Yeah, you're so, welcome. I, yeah. In the storyline, you take us back from, to 1910, back to the present time. You bounce back and forth between various parts of Europe and, and America. If you could go back in time and a place, where would you go? Oh, wow. That's a good question. I I have a couple of places and things I'd like to do. I think I might like to go back to the time that's in this book around 1911, 1912, be in Paris with Picasso and Brock and Gertrude Stein and all those people. That always seemed like an amazing time for me, to me. And then I might also want to go back like around the late 40s, 1950 in New York with the abstract expressionists, Kooning and all those guys and that crazy although I'm, I'm not a drinker so I would they would probably have not let me in the group but um yeah I mean it's great to imagine some time travel and, and, and put yourself in another place you know I, so I always give the uh, the guests the latitude to um ask their own questions because I do know that I uh, sometimes I miss the point and I leave stuff out so if you could sit down if you look in a mirror or looking at a picture of yourself on a canvas and ask each of you a question what would you ask what would I ask myself yes oh my Gosh, that is such a big question. Ah, <laughs> well, I would. It depends on my day. If I was having a uh, good day, I would probably just be asking myself what I want to do next. Because I'm always um, one of the do things about me is I'm always kind of a uh, racing ahead, and I like to do a lot of things. So I'd probably say, well, what are you going to do next? What are you going to do now? 
Um, if it was a bad day, I would say, oh gosh, why do you do anything? Just get into your bed or, you know, go lie down and stop everything. Um, you know, uh, when I was young, I thought we had super control over our lives and what happened. And now that I know that's not true, um, I just sort of go along with things. I do my work, I keep my head down, I love my friends. Um, yeah, you know, and coming out of this last year, I feel like uh, I'm happy to be here and um, going forward, you know. All right. Is that a you know? Uh, my guest has been Jonathan St. Lover. His new book called The Last Mona Lisa. I am convinced that when people hear this podcast, they are going to be happy and thrilled that we had some time to spend with you. Thank you, my friend. It's good to see you again. It's great to see you, too. Thanks a lot. Uh, this is the podcast, Artful Periscope. After the break in studio, singer-songwriter Karen Bella joins us. We'll be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. Do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do
Fleetwood Mac. Um, I have to say this off the top. I didn't even think about this till you started playing. There's something so special about music. I only speak for myself, how it penetrates us. You know, when, when there's a cold winter rain that goes right through your bones, you feel it and you shiver. Um, the way you just played and sang, it's, it's kind of, for me, I'm shivering in a sense because <laughs> it's, you know, this, this is just me. I, there's just something special about not just you, obviously, but what singer-songwriters can do and touch us. So I thank you so much for coming in and joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right, so I always ask the same uh, question for people who have been here before. Do you remember the first time you picked up a guitar? When was that? Yes, I was definitely a kid, uh, probably in 11 or 12, and that was because of my father who always had a guitar and always played, uh, but like for himself, like he would just play the few songs he knew for his own enjoyment. And then he would put it down and continue whatever else he wanted to do. So I started getting lessons at 13 uh, for about six weeks. And then I was like, this is too hard for me. And I put it down and I didn't pick it up till I went to college, which I regret, but I've always, I picked it up probably around 11 or 12. You know, I think about uh, Nancy Wilson from Heart, that she had four or five guitars made just for her. Mm-hmm. And it was really special because this is her instrument. Do you have a guitar? Do you have many guitars? It is, this, how does it fit? How does it feel for you? Does it have to be just something that's just yours? Right. So I would say I, I have about four acoustic guitars. One was my father's, which I don't play because it's it's not in playable uh, formation. I have an Ibanez uh, acoustic guitar, which didn't cost too much, but I love playing her because she's very comfortable. And uh, we'll go into ca- high caliber and, and less caliber guitars in a second because I have a point about that. And then I have two Martins. This is the first Martin that I purchased, and even though she is a basic Martin, she sounds so beautiful and warm and full and bright. And then the the other Martin that I have is in the shop. It's not custom made, but it's a higher caliber than this one, 
and I had the pickup changed. It all Fishmans come with, uh, I'm sorry, all Martins come with Fishman pickup built in it. And there are different types of pickups. So because I use a looper and create percussive sounds with the wood of the guitar, I needed a special type of pickup that would pick up that sound and give it a really full, warm wood earth feel. So right, right. I use the Fishman power tap um, pickup in my other Martin and, um, but I, I will say that it doesn't matter what level of guitar you have. It's all about how it fits with you and how you mold with it and connect with it. I look at instruments as though they are, um, in a way, living things. You are creating a relationship with your instrument. Uh, let's talk about your relationships with some of the songs, your, your original songs. Let's uh, Give us the background of the first song you're going to play for us. I think it's called Needle in the Hay. Needle in the Hay. So I wrote that song. I was going through a lot of different things. And initially I thought, oh, this is another typical, like, my heart is broken song. But it really, the the whole gist of the song is searching for happiness which at the time for me was like searching for a needle in a haystack. And um, even though that there's only one time that needle in the hay is mentioned in the lyrics, it felt like the appropriate name for the song. And I like, I, you don't realize these things at the time because you're in the mode, you're in the work mode, you're getting whatever uh, ideas you're getting um, in that moment. And then after the fact, you can kind of reflect on, well, why did I do that? Why is it this? Why does this fit here? Should I move this around? Um, what do I think about this? Listening it to from different perspectives, not just from your own, but imagining like, oh, I'm listening to this as though I never heard the song before. And so that's basically what the song is about. It's about the search of happiness and all the different things that cause you to be unhappy, but you're still searching for happiness. All right, we're happy you're here. <laughs> Thanks. Needle in the hay. Can I be honest? A lifetime can change every day. And sometimes we don't notice someone isn't worth the chase And they last forever And they even feel better But don't give yourself away Cause I've learned how To live with the pain Screaming loud arthritis Of the brain see humor filled with disdain but nothing hurts as much as when I hear your name I'll never be a darling Wanted to be a goddess anyway. Most of the time I'm gutted, or oh, I'm haunted by the oddest dreams that become nightmares. 
That's Karen Bella. I'm Larry Davidson. You're listening to the podcast, Artful Periscope. Educate us. What is it? I mean, it seems like a silly question, but what is the difference between performing in front of an audience and recording in a studio? I listened to your EP. I love it, by the way. So Thank you. tell us about the differences in terms of the creative process and the energy between the both of those performances. Well, when you're in the studio, you can, um, there's not, there, there is a pressure of, that uh, record light syndrome. I don't know if, if like that's a correct analogy or term, um, but there is a nervousness of, oh my God, you have to record this and this is being recorded, so you have to do it right. But then once you get used to that, you know you can redo it and repeat and right. there's no pressure right. and you're working with people, hopefully that you trust that uh, you're just, you all have the same goal, which is to get the best result. Um, and you stay in the studio until you get it right. But also at the same time, it's so uh, rewarding because you get to be creative right there on the spot and you get ideas and things blossom. So you'll walk in with nothing and you'll leave with something really wonderful. And um, and you also have that ability to really go in the zone of whatever it is that you're doing, singing laying down an instrument, getting ideas, you're in that zone of that connectivity to uh, your higher self and that special place that you connect to when you create. Live, it's that plus the uh, adrenaline rush that you feel and that intoxicating high that you get from performing, from doing what you love and 
there's uh, that live aspect as well where anything can happen at any moment, at any time, and you got to be on your feet. So you're in the moment, you're excited, you got adrenaline rushing through you, uh, whether you're solo or you got uh, a band on top of you. Sorry, I keep hitting the mic. And, um, And then you have the energy of the audience whether they're paying attention or watching or, or recording on their phones, you're working off of them and you get to interact with them. In the studio, you're just interacting with the people you're working with. You're not working off of an audience, but um, they're both rewarding in their own ways. They're both similar and different at the same time. And I hope that that explains it. You know, we're recording this podcast as the Olympics are going on. I was watching some coverage earlier today with some of the medal winners. And they make an, raise an interesting point, and I've thought about this in many different aspects of life in general, that they're, it's all exciting. They got the medal, they're competing on, an, on the world stage, and then, boom, it's over. Yeah. They have to go home. After a performance, when it's over, do you decompress? Is, is there a period, is a little bit of a depression? Because you, this energy's out there, it's flowing out, mm. you're getting feedback from the audience, and then... It's done. So how do you react to that? I will say that it depends what type of performance it was or project that you worked on. I know whenever I do something that is really important to me, like recording the record or making the music video uh, for Jack Honey, um, which I think is one of the songs that I'll be performing today. Oh, it's my favorite one. Oh, wow. It cool. is. Thank so, you. So the video is officially done. We're figuring out when we're releasing it, which um, might be very soon. And uh, yeah, you go into a depression. You go, am I ever going to experience this again? This was such a great experience of my life, making this record, making this video, or whatever it is, or this performance that I just did. Uh, in this state and all the things that I got to experience and you're happy, you're so happy about it and you know you're blessed because we all know the history of our lives and what we've gone through and what we've done to get to this specific moment and the and the moments that we also want to accomplish. And you're happy, but you do feel that sadness. You feel very sad because you're like, is this going to happen again? Like I said earlier, am I going to feel this way again? Uh, that that excitement again. Am I going to become irrelevant after this? Am I going to lose all my money? Am I going to, you know, you have all these mm-hmm. questions that go through your head. Right. And then something wonderful happens and you're like, maybe I should be more optimistic. <laughs> you uh, know? Well, I want to get the la- two more songs in before we end this particular segment of the podcast, Artful Periscope. So let's go to um, uh, Good Morning and give us the sure. background of that if you want. Good Morning was written about, uh, it's a pretty self-explanatory song. It's um, I wrote this about somebody that I loved very much at the time. We're still on very good terms. And it's about waking up next to the person you want to wake up next to and really finding that to be beautiful, no matter what is going on. And you're just in that moment of being next to that person in the morning. Good morning, I hope you had a good time last night And if it's boring, walk a mile out in sunlight And maybe it's cold outside, but I don't care Cause when I have you to home, paradise everywhere 
slept well all through the night. You were snoring, kept me up until there was light. And maybe there's snow outside, but I don't care. Cause I had you to sleep by my side and So we're of different generations, but music is universal. I've just got access to the latest Jackson Brown album. Oh, nice. I love Jackson Brown's use of word imagery. It's going from way back, late for the sky, everything else. Do you have a favorite singer-songwriter that you will just listen to and say, wow, this is amazing work? Yes. Um, There are a few. Elton John. Okay. I love his work. All right. His songs are just epic, and I love the the style of writing that makes his writing so u- unique is that he creates the melody um, and someone else creates the lyrics, whether it's he's working with Tim Rice for The Lion King, right? right. Or... Um, Bernie Top. Or, or, yeah, yeah, or right, Bernie. Right, right. Because uh, I know he's worked with m- many people. But mainly with Bernie, and uh, and I really I could listen anytime, any mood. John Mayer, I just I love his music. I love everything from his early work to his very current stuff, and to see um, in my lifetime an artist from from my lifetime that we are of, uh, similar generations, his growth as an artist and as a songwriter. So, and yes. also just the way he plays the guitar, oh, man. right? God. Right. I keep hitting this thing. I'm so That's sorry. Right. It's live. We have no problem with that. Ah, <laughs> uh, I just—he's—he's he's a master on the—he's—he's he's unique, original. He has his own sound. You hear his influences, but he's really amazing. So if you could, if you could pay to see somebody, because I guess you have access to a lot of music, just with friends and colleagues, who would you pay in terms of a concert to go see? 
Well, I recently paid to go see John Mayer concert. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. In Albany on February 17th. I'm really excited. I think that's going to be his first, the opening night for his tour, unless they add something earlier. So on the local level, where are you playing? Where are you performing? I don't remember my schedule off the top of my head at the moment, but I perform all over in different country clubs, restaurants, pubs, venues, original music, covers. And you can go to KarenBella.com to get my schedule. You can go directly to KarenBella.com slash shows or just go to KarenBella.com, go to the menu. It'll lead you to everything you need, my music, my schedule, links to other social media, so on and so forth. So we're going to kind of wind down. I don't even think this is winding down because I love this song. We're going to finish with Karen Bella performing. Well, you want to talk about the background, but Jack Honey is my favorite. Well, Jack Honey is um, a song that when I, I literally wrote it, I think I got the gist of the idea down in 15 minutes and then spent another hour or two kind of developing it and, and finding out what the right tempo is and the lyrics and stuff. I remember... I was telling myself as I'm writing the song, you keep using so many different chords in your songs that it's getting a little complicated. You should just make things simple and to the point. Uh, and and I remember when I wrote the chorus for Jack Honey, I just remember thinking, write something that you wouldn't write. Write something that's more catchy, that's more uh, in your face. Okay. And, uh, and, and and I had something to write about, too, which uh, was written about two different men. And uh, one introduced me, one was a bartender, um, and he introduced me to Jack Daniels whiskey. And it became my favorite drink. I love it. I love it on the rocks, a chilled shot. And, uh, and so that was kind of like an homage to him in that moment. And then uh, it was also about an, another... Um, man who uh inspired the second verse so i mean they're about specific things this song is fun it's about somebody who went away and you miss them and you go man you know i would do anything just to get another shot of them in the meantime (laughs) can i have a (laughs) shot of jack honey and it's just talking about your desire for somebody and wanting to still be with them and uh and even though I, w- I think that the chorus is very hooky for a commercial, okay, right? I liked it. Then uh, it fits the song in general, whether it's a commercial or not. And I, I love it because it's fun and people are reacting really well to it. And the music video is about to come out, as I mentioned earlier, which was a lot of fun making. See, when you talk, you remind me of somebody I love, Bonnie Raitt. Oh, really? She puts it out there. She puts it out there. And I think the song puts it out there, too. Awesome. I love Bonnie Raitt. And she can play. All right, cool. So we're going to hear Jack Honey. Yes. Awesome. Your pretty blue eyes wore a vacant disguise when you went away. And the hole that's inside eating me alive, keeping me away. I swear I'm alive. Never see color as vibrant as I did when I got to see Behind cemented feather cracks in the walls I kept the secret of your beauty The little eyes that were kept in 
love we got to find the difference of our age you don't want the others to know that we got to feel the angle of sculpted features in every way do you want my lovers to know got to see the ups and downs and in and outs and in betweens of clarity Outside in your black attire led me to the gate Into the world that you traveled in and the one that we'd create I wanted to know if you were half as good as you inclined And show me how you demonstrate And would this corrupt my mind take it to the hand of time As we accelerate You're not a cowboy but if you were The bunny tongue, Mr. International, almost perfect, too. So, give me a shot of Jack, honey, honey. Give me a shot of you. Give me a shot of Jack, honey, honey. Give me a shot of you. Two really interesting women, Mona Lisa and Karen Bella. Till next time, I'm Larry Davidson. Bye bye. The Artful Periscope Podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer, 
and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. She broke your throne and she cut your hair